Today's reading is from Acts 3, 1 through 10. Now Peter and John were going up to the temple at the hour of prayer. It's the ninth hour. And a man, lame from birth, was being carried, whom they laid daily at the grate of the temple that is called the Beautiful Gate, to ask alms of those entering the temple. Seeing Peter and John about to go into the temple, he asked to receive alms. And Peter directed his gaze at him, as did John, and said, look at us. And he fixed his attention on them, expecting to read something from them. But Peter said, I have no silver and gold, but what I do have, I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And he took him by the right hand and raised him up, and immediately his feet and ankles were made strong. And leaping up, he stood and began to walk and entered the temple with them, walking, leaping, and praising God. And all the people saw him walking and praising God and recognized him as the one who sat at the beautiful gate of the temple, asking for alms. And they were filled with wonder and amazement of what had happened to him. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. Thank you, David. Well, for those of you I don't know, my name is uh, Andrew. I'm the campus pastor here at the Leewood campus. Welcome, if I haven't met you yet. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to start off, a, it's a little strange given the reading, but it'll make sense in a second. So um, how many of you, have, has everybody here uh, been to the World War I Memorial downtown for the most part? Yeah, if you're from here, you've done it. If you're new to the area and you haven't done that yet, I highly recommend it. It's one of the coolest things you can do here in Kansas City. Uh, it's probably best known, that whole area is probably best known for the museum, which is really cool, really informative, uh, and the Liberty Memorial, the actual tower uh, itself uh, on the grounds. And uh, when you walk up the path to the actual structure, um, you kind of get awestruck by that tower. I mean, it's impossible to miss. And on a beautiful day like, you know, this picture shows, uh, it's one of the most amazing sights you can see here in Kansas City. There's no question in my mind. But it's, it's really easy, uh, especially the first time you, you visit here, it's easy uh, to forget that the tower, as amazing as it is, and, and the museum, as informative as it is, they are not the point of the memorial. You can get so caught up in the grandeur and the beauty of the building that you never actually look down at your feet where you're walking, and the path up to the memorial is called the Walk of Honor. And it actually lists the names of, of men and women who uh, served as, as, yeah, in our military, served our country, some of whom gave their lives uh, in service. And, uh, you know, the Liberty Memorial and the museum are, are there to, to get your attention and to educate you and to draw you in. But the point, the reason the whole thing exists in the first place is actually the pathway up. See, we can, it's easy to miss the point. And why do I say that? Well, the texts like the ones we, we just read, stories like that, we, it's easy to miss the point. It's a miracle story. Hopefully you picked up on that. A guy who can't walk is given the ability to walk again. It's, it's amazing. And we can, we can get caught up in the unbelievableness of it. In, in the, you know, we, we, but, but the miracle is not the point of that story. Uh, this story isn't here for fun. It's not here by accident. It's, it's a sign it's a sign. Uh, it's not here to wow us, like, whoa, amazing. Or not only to do that, but to teach us. 
This is why Peter, we didn't read this, but Peter preaches a sermon right after this sign to explain what it means. This is, if you'll, if you'll notice, the very first miracle of the early church. This is the first miracle performed by the apostles uh, in, the early, in the era of the early church. This is also the first thing we really see the church doing as a scattered reality. And maybe you've heard that language here at Christ Community before, but uh, let me put it to you a different way. Last week, if you were here, Tom talked about what does the church do when it gathers together? And Luke gives us a pattern in, in uh, chapter 2 of what, what the church was like when it gathered together for worship. Uh, this is the first picture of what does the church do when it's scattered, uh, when it's out and about in the world. What, how, what, when believers interact with the world, what should it be like? This is one of the first pictures we get, we get of that. So I hope I'm impressing on you. We need to see this and pay attention to it. Specifically, this, it, it, this teaches us what is the church to be about today? Not exhaustively, but it gives us at least four things I want us to pay attention to. And I'm going to be really melodramatic. I'm not going to tell you what they are yet. But for, leave space, if you're taking notes, leave space for four things. Okay, so if you brought your Bible, turn to Acts chapter 3. Um, we're going to look at the story again and see what the sign is, is telling us. Now, now, while you're getting there, I want to, I want to reorient you. Uh, we've been in the book of Acts for several weeks now, which is the, the early church, uh, the first steps of this, of this Jesus movement in Jerusalem so far. It's in one city, really, so far. And over the last few weeks, the church has, has seen incredible growth in Acts chapters 1 and 2. So uh, Peter preaches a sermon. 3,000 people are added to the church in that moment. And then Luke is sure to tell us Then every day, daily, people are being added to the church. This is growing incredibly quickly. And then in chapter 3, uh, we find two of the leaders of the early church, Peter and John, going to the temple to, to worship, which was uh, common at this time. This is about, Luke tells us, uh, the ninth hour, which is about 3 o'clock, uh, in the afternoon. That's in verse 1. So they're going to pray. This is a very common time of prayer uh, in Jerusalem. Many people would pause in their day here to pray or visit the temple to pray, uh, which is why, so there's a lot of people pouring into the temple right now, which is why the impetus of the story here, right, is that's why a man lame from birth is carried to the gate called beautiful. Now here's kind of a, a mock-up of what the temple, the Herodian temple would have looked like at this time and you can see right here in the kind of in the front is the is what we think is the beautiful gate. There's several gates you could access uh, into that uh, that inner court there. We think the beautiful gate is this one. It uh, the gates had different names, and we're not quite sure which one was called the beautiful gate. This one here um, it ha was considered the most decorative, the most beautiful, you might say. So uh, we're pretty sure this is what Luke meant. But a gate like this is where the man sits as people enter in. And uh, he can't walk, so his, his friends or his relatives, someone has to carry him there every day, every day. He's there like clockwork. He's a staple presence there. Everyone knows this guy's face. They know him. And he's not dumb. He's, he's there during peak hours, right? This is a normal time of prayer. And it's important that he get the timing of all of this right, because in the ancient world, you know, there are no, you know, there are no ADA laws. There are no ADA rights. He, he's uh, to make money, especially in the lower classes, you, you had to use your body. You had to be a laborer to make money. Uh, and so he, if you think about it in our context, basically he has no access to jobs, essentially. He has no access to work because he can't walk. So this is, one of the, this is the only way he can survive. For his whole life, he can't walk. So he, he begs, and he's there. it says he's there to receive alms, is what Luke says. 
This is a, a common practice of the time, a respected practice in Judaism. Uh, the Jewish faithful were supposed to be generous, especially with those in need. And so uh, people uh, would share with him as they walked into worship, and he knew this was a great time to get people at their, at their lowest, right? They feel guilty, they're going to prayer, Give me, you know, be generous. He knew this is a great time to be there. And so here comes Peter and John, uh, and he asked them for money. He has no idea who they, are, who they are. He asked them for money. Now, I'm imagining that this whole practice works a lot, worked a lot then like it does today. So this guy, he, he puts his hand out, and he's probably holding a bowl or a cup or something, and he basically, he'd ask every single person as they're kind of filing through this gate, can, I, can you spare, can you spare, sir, can you spare some, miss, can you spare some, some change? And some people would give, and some people wouldn't, and hardly anybody would probably really look at him or pay attention to him, right? They've got places to go and people to see and prayers to pray and stuff like that. And they see him there every day, you know. My, my hunch is there's, there's some compassion fatigue with this guy. It's like, okay, I, I gave to you last week. I'll, maybe next week I'll think about it again. But, uh, you know, I, I've got places to go. I've got things to do. So it's weird to him. He's used to that. He's used to that. That's, that's his daily reality is people not really paying attention to him. So it's weird to him is my guess. When Peter and John, you know, Luke says, stare intently at him. And Peter says, hey, look over here. Look at us. He gets his attention. That's unusual. That's, that's weird. So this guy puts his hand out to them. He's probably thinking, like, score. Anyone who pays attention to me, they're going to give me something, right? Other, maybe a larger uh, gift than normal. Maybe some kind of uh, help that most people wouldn't give me. So he puts his, he puts his hand out to them, like, you're going to help me. And while he's doing that, uh, Peter starts talking to him. And he leads with, <laughs> I have no silver or gold which is just about the most disappointing thing you could say to this guy in this moment. He's got to be thinking, great, go ahead and go then, because this is a waste of my time. <laughs> You're scaring away the other people. Just, just, just go, move along. And then Peter, he follows that up with something even stranger. He says, but what I do have, I give to you. In the name of Jesus of Nazareth, rise and walk. Now, in my mind, two things happen here at once. Okay, one of them is real and one of them is just my imagination. So the, the one in my imagination is I love that Luke doesn't say what John is doing this whole time. And I have to imagine, maybe not, but I have to imagine John is looking at Peter like, dude, just chill. Like, <laughs> we don't have to prove anything right. Let's just go pray. That's why we came. Let's go pray together. I don't know. But you have no, maybe he's pulling Peter along. We, we have no idea. But the, the thing that actually we know for sure happens, this guy who still has his hands up, he's got to be incredibly confused, right? He went from annoyed to now confused. He's like, did that guy just, did he just tell me to rise and walk? Does he, does he know who he's talking to? You know, I got to wonder, did his eyes shift to John? Like, is he okay? Should I give him money? Like, does he need help more than I do? But before he doesn't, you know, the way Luke tells you, he doesn't say a word. He, he before he can respond, Peter grabs his hand that's still up. That's verse 7. And it, it, you know, just pulls him up. It's like starting a lawnmower. He just he pulls the guy right to his feet. And the guy probably yells or he's got to be shocked. He, maybe he says a swear word. I don't know. But here's where Luke, uh, here's what Luke says. It says, immediately his feet and ankles were made strong. And Luke, the physician, he wants us to, to know 
that not only were the tendons and the bones and the ligaments and, and the, 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 the parts of the, of the foot uh, healed in such a way that walking was possible, but they're all made strong, the muscles too, as if he had been walking his whole life. So you've got to imagine a, a lifetime of sitting down, the atrophy, the weakness that would go with it. It's all, it's all healed immediately, immediately. And the guy, realizing now that he's standing on his own, I think he's, he starts then to walk and then to run and then to jump and then to leap. And he's, now he's hollering like a kid on Christmas morning. And for the first time in his life, he can walk on his own. It's never happened before. And everybody walking by, right, all these faithful pilgrims, they know him. They've seen this guy. And at least one of them had to think, has that guy been ripping us off all these years every day? But Luke, Luke doesn't want us to think that. He says this is actually the reality. <laughs> they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. See, they're just as shocked that this has happened as we are, that Peter and John have healed this man. And so the three of them now, Peter and John and, and this, this guy, uh, they hobble over to the side of the courtyard known as Solomon's portico or Solomon's porch. It's just the one of the sides of, of, the, of the temple. That's in verse 11. And I love how Luke puts it. He's clinging to them. He's clinging to Peter. It's like he thinks at any moment my legs are going to give out again. He's still in shock that this has happened. And the crowds that have seen this, they follow all three of them. To, to, and, and Peter seizes this moment to explain what this sign means. He begins to preach a sermon. Because Peter knew and we must know that as important and beautiful and amazing as the miracle itself is, and it is, it's amazing, it's the sign, what it's saying to us about what the church is and what God is doing in the world, that is much more important. We have to see that. And even if we aren't out performing miracles like this every day, there's a pattern to this sign there are themes in it that we need to know that are still relevant to us being followers of Jesus today. This is still what the church is about. So I can't unpack all of Peter's sermon, but I, I just want to give you the I want to give you four themes here that are still true today. The first is uh, the first major theme that jumps out at you is is the name of Jesus, Jesus' name. And Peter is so adamant here. He, when he picks the guy up, if you notice, he says, "In the name of Jesus, rise and walk." When he explains uh, what's happening, he says this in verse 12. He says, why do you wonder at this? He's saying to the crowd, why do you wonder at this? Or why do you stare at us as though by our own power or piety we have made him walk? The God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, the God of our fathers, glorified his servant Jesus. Skip to verse 16. And his name, by faith in his name, has made this man strong whom you see and know. And the faith that is through Jesus has given the man this perfect health in the presence of you all. So the first thing you see here for the church is that our, our power is in Jesus' name. Our power is in Jesus' name. You can't miss it. This is one of the main purposes of this sign. It's, it's about proclaiming Jesus' name, not Peter's name, not John's name, not the church's name, not the name of a political party or platform, Right? Our power is not in religious buildings and facilities. Remember, this is at the temple. It's not in great wealth and possessions. Peter says, silver and gold have I not. 
It is the power of the church is in Jesus' name. Now, that sounds kind of abstract, so let me just remind you that we get that intuitively today, too. Names have power, some more than others. That's why when you go to a concert and you're trying to sneak in the back, you say something like, I'm with the band, right? It's why if you go to a restaurant and you know the owner, you are absolutely going to drop their name. I know them. Because it changes, you know, it, where you sit and how you're treated and what, what service you get. But it, but it only works if the name you say is alive and kicking. It's the only way that works. Peter is dropping the ultimate name. That's what he's doing. He's saying Jesus' name uh, doesn't just change your weight staff. It, it changes molecular structure. Jesus' name has the power to reshape DNA. Peter says, I know the name of the author of life. And this sign is a testament to you and to anyone who watches that his name has power because he reigns right now. He is alive. And he is in control. And he owns it all. That's the kind of power, right, is in his name. Now listen, this is not, I have to hasten to add, this is not a parlor trick. Don't go home and start asking for random things in Jesus' name. That's not, not, not how it works. It's not an incantation to get what you want. It's a sign. It's not a promise that in every case, at all times, this will happen. It's a signpost to a watching world at a critical time that Jesus' name is the name above all names. And this means, uh, as Jesus' people, we, that, that, like Peter, our job is to bear witness to his name, in all that we do. And there's a lot, there's a lot we could go, I, I just want to give you a simple question. Is this a name that we're sharing? Are you sharing this name? Can you testify to people about the power of this name in your life? Can you point to his name in your own life? Okay, that's number one, our powers in his name. Number two, uh, the second thing this teaches is that our mission as a church is restoration. Restoration. Look at verse 21. Peter says, this Jesus who is in heaven and will remain there until he is ready to completely restore all things. That's kind of my paraphrase. Peter says Jesus is about restoring all things. Peter's making it clear here. He says this is not a display of power and miracle for, the, for power's sake. This is not just a random act of power. It, it's, the, it's power for the purpose of restoring something. This is what God, this is what Jesus is about. And this is something we often miss when we read miracle stories in the Bible, okay? So have you ever stopped and asked yourself when you've read something like this, why this miracle and not something else? Why did they, do, why did they heal this guy right, who can't walk? Why, why this and not something else? I mean, if Peter's whole point is to draw a crowd, there are a lot of ways to do that, right? He could have if his point was to say, look, you know, we're the church, you don't know who we are yet, but we're the church, and we're right, and you're wrong, and we have the truth, and we have the power, and I'm going to prove it to you, right? If he could have, he, he, he could have turned stones to bread, said, look, he could have jumped off the temple mount and flown. He could have transported from one end of the courtyard to another, and any one of those things would have drawn a crowd, I'm assuming. You'd have listened to his sermon, wouldn't you, if you saw that? You'd be there. But notice this, almost all of the miracles of the Bible, without fail, almost all of the miracles of the Bible like this, 
are about restoration to wholeness. Have you noticed that? Almost every single one is about taking taking human suffering and brokenness and restoring it to wholeness. And Peter's saying here, when he talks about Jesus, this is a sign about Jesus' plan to restore all things. All things. This sign is not just about Jesus' power, it's about his plan, it's about his mission in the world. And this reminds us as, as his followers and to anyone who will read this story, it's a, it's a reminder that things like lameness and blindness and illness and death and suffering and loss and grief and pain and all of that stuff is not the plan. That is not God's plan. That is a part of the consequences of sin in the world. That is a consequence of humanity turning its back on, a, on our Creator God. That is where, it's not from God, that is where poverty and injustice and sickness and death come from. What Jesus is doing in a broken world is restoring to it what God intended in the beginning. This is his mission. He hates, he despises the bad stuff even more than you do. And this is a sign that he's doing something about it. He's taking one life and saying, this is a microcosm of my work in the universe, restoration, through Peter, He restores this man to wholeness. Do you see that? Restoration. It's a sign about what the world really is. You know, we often look at miracles like this and we basically say, miracles is when God does something that's not normal. Basically, right? That's how you describe a miracle. It's not normal. God does something unusual that he doesn't normally do. But you know, for the Christian, that's really not true. If what we're saying is true, and that what God is doing is, is restoring the world back to what he wanted. Miracles are the most natural thing about our world. It's the brokenness. It's the cancer and the political corruption and the racism and the bullying and the hurricanes and the car accidents. That is the least natural thing about our world. What God is doing and promises to do in the end is to restore it to what it was supposed to be. That is the most natural thing about our world. Miracles are the only natural thing about our world. That's our view, right? This is a sign that Jesus will restore all things, which means a lot of things, but at least it means that all Christian work, okay, our job is to be with Jesus in the restoration of all things. If his plan is to restore all things, then our job is to restore all things. That's our mission too. It means that everything we do is about restoring God's design to the world. In our relationships, in our lifestyles, in our uh, conversations, in our budgeting and how we use our money, we are restoring all things. Perhaps more than anything else we do, in the work we do every day, we we are called to be restoring to the world what God designed in the first place. Whether that work is paid or unpaid, it's in an office, it's at home. It can look very different for a lot of us, but we are about restoring God's design. And I'm not just talking about pastors right now. I'm not talking about missionaries right now. I'm talking about the work we do every day. And you know, if you've been around Christ community for a while, you either are really excited that I'm saying that or your, your eyes are glazing over because you're like, you guys say that all the time. That all of our work is about restoring 
all things to God. And, and you know, there was a time where the hierarchy there was like, well, there's pastors and they really restore everything and then there's the rest of us. That's not true. I don't hear that as much here anymore. Here's what I hear. There's people who work with people and they restore everything. And then there's me and I don't work with people. Right? I do, I do uh, computer programming. Right? How am I restoring the world? That's what I hear. I, here's who I hear it from the most is accountants. I get this all the time. I really do. Accountants say, I'm an accountant. You're telling me my job is to restore all things. How, how am I doing that? Tell me. Convince me. Okay? So let me do that. I can't do, I can't do the whole thing just, but let me give you an imagination for what this looks like, what our job is. Okay? We've got um, 30 people, probably, in our Financial Peace University class. Do you guys know what that is? You heard of that before? Financial peace is basically like um, a class on economic and accounting wisdom for your personal life. That's what it is. We've got about uh, 30 people in that class right now. Have you ever seen someone take economic accounting wisdom and apply it to their lives for the first time after making a lot of financial mistakes? You ever seen that before? Have you ever seen someone take a, a company and turn it around because someone finally got a handle on the books and held the company accountable. That's where we get that word. Okay, if, if, if watching a person or organization become wise with their resources because of your work and then because of that is able to build capacity for their family, for their community, for their employees... Right? If, you've, if, if you've never seen the weight lift off of a marriage, and I have, when the money is finally put in order, or if you've never seen the thanks of a person who gets to keep their job because an accountant is making sure the company remains solvent, if, you have not, if that is not restoration of God's good design for human flourishing, I don't know what is. Do you see what I'm saying? Restoration of all things. That's our mission. Each one of us. It doesn't have to be miraculous. God is still using us. Jesus is using his church to restore all things. Okay, third thing. Our power is in his name. Our mission is restoration. Our message is, is forgiveness. Our message is forgiveness. Peter puts it this way in his sermon uh, in verse 19. He says, repent. This is like the application. He says, repent and turn back that your sins may be blotted out and that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. Peter's saying, if you look at this sign carefully, you can see not only God's plan of ultimate restoration that's, an, that's starting now, but the, the forgiveness and refreshing is available to anybody right now forgiveness. Now, we did a whole sermon on this a few weeks ago, so I don't, I don't want to belabor the point, but there is a nuance here in this story I think is worth drawing out. It's so stark here in, in the story itself. You remember, this, uh, this beggar is in the temple. He's asking for uh, alms, and Peter is very explicit. He says, I don't have money for you. I have something better than money. It's as if Peter is saying, you think you need more alms. You think that your body is broken and that that is your biggest problem in life. 
Your body's broken. That's your biggest problem. And it is a problem. But your biggest problem is not that your body is broken, it's that your soul is broken. It's that your heart is closed. It's that your eyes are blind. It's, it's that you don't need alms. You need forgiveness in Jesus' name. This is what Peter's doing. And, and don't miss this. You know, elsewhere in Luke's writings, he wrote the book of Acts. In chapter 5 of Luke, uh, Jesus does a very similar, performs a very similar miracle with a paralytic. You know what the first thing Jesus says to him? It's not rise and walk. Guess what it is? Your sins are forgiven. Now rise and walk. See the connection Jesus is making here. The wholeness that we want is on the other side of forgiveness. This sign is not about giving you whatever you want. It's about giving you what you need. How many of us, and I, you know, I do this, how many of us in the name of Jesus come to him for alms? You know, we come to him because our marriage is broken or we don't feel happy anymore. We need wisdom for our business. We need to help with the decision. Or, or we really just need silver and gold. Like we are having financial problems. We come to his church asking for alms. And, and, and all of those are real problems that God is committed to restoring. Okay, we just talked about that, but it takes so much more to do that than we realize. And Peter's reminding us, and this sign is teaching us, that we need forgiveness and that whatever else the church does to love her neighbor which we should be doing a lot. Whatever else we do, okay, financial generosity, work of reconciliation, community development, poverty alleviation, all the things the church should be doing to love our neighbor, we must always take with us the message of forgiveness that makes that restoration possible. We do not merely give alms. That is not the church's job. Lots of organizations give alms. As far as I know, we are the only organization on the planet that can, that can offer to someone forgiveness in Jesus' name. That's our job. Okay, last thing. Uh, our power is in his name. Our, our mission is restoration. Our message is forgiveness. And our method is weakness. There's a real kind of weakness in following Jesus. Of, of all the amazing things we see here in this story that... Peter's emphasis in so many ways is on what makes it possible. And here, here's verse 18. He says, but what God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets that his Christ would suffer, he thus fulfilled. This is one of the biggest stumbling blocks of the early uh, Jewish believers was how could, how could God's power, his anointed, his Messiah die in weakness? How is that possible? Peter's saying, this was always the plan. He said, look at the weakness here. Peter's alluding to this, right? that none of this other stuff is possible without the weakness of Jesus. There is no power for the church if, Je if, if Jesus is not weak on the cross. There is no uh, restoration without Jesus' destruction. There's no forgiveness without judgment. This man's body cannot be made strong unless someone was first made weak. This is the logic of God's kingdom. Which means, church, at a minimum, that our position is one of weakness too. We follow him here. If we want to believe in Jesus and the power in his name and the restoration of all things and the forgiveness that he offers, then we too must respond in our own 
weakness. And this is why Jesus says of his community of people over and over and over again, the greatest among you will be the least. The first will be last. The leader will be the servant, will be the slave of all. He says this over, and our weakness is the clearest message to a watching world that Jesus reigns. Our service, our willingness to carry our cross, even for people who hate us. You know, Peter and John, this is next week's sermon, so I don't want to step on it too much. But right after this, this gets them arrested. This miracle and then the sermon they preach, this gets them arrested. Weakness. And it will only get worse for the church, really, from this moment on in terms of persecution. But this is the method of Christ. And it's our method too. And here's, I want to conclude with, with just a picture of this. You know, in our Lenten devotionals yesterday, if you've been following along, you read the story of Polycarp, who was kind of the first Christian martyr outside of the biblical era. It's one of the first Christian martyrs to die for his faith. Uh, people say, the rumor is, that he was discipled by John, the, apostle, the very John of this story. He was one of the last to be discipled by an apostle. He, he did a lot during his life as a bishop in what is now modern-day Turkey. Uh, and we ha- actually have a letter that he wrote, so you get a sense of who he was. He was not, it doesn't seem likely he was a highly educated guy, uh, but very humble, very good leader. We know almost nothing about his life, uh, but we know everything about his death. An account was written shortly after he was martyred about what happened. He was, he was executed by the Roman Empire. He was arrested because there's growing fear around this Christian movement that people didn't know what it was. And the most powerful thing Polycarp ever did was to put on display for the world his weakest moment. His, his arrest, his imprisonment, and ultimately his execution. When he would, not, he would not bow his knee to Caesar as Lord, he said, no, I will not do that. And the account of his death, uh, it was sent to the local churches to encourage them to say, we know you're, you're going through suffering, but God's using it. Um, you know, it but the, the account of his death doesn't end that way. It ends very powerfully. Uh, th- this weakness, this cross, here is its real power. Uh, his death is spoken of often in the churches. Here was the climax, but it is everywhere spoken among the heathen. Everywhere. The account ends, every Roman is talking about this man's death because there's no category for this in what we believe. This man's weakness is changing the way we see the world. And you see, his weakness, just like Jesus's, it, is the, it was the sign that would ultimately change the Roman Empire forever. This was the beginning of the end. (laughs) Because his weakness was that seed planted. May our lives and may our church witness likewise be assigned to to Jesus' life-transforming power in and through our weakness. Let's pray to him now. Father, in our weakness, show your strength. In our weakness, show your victory. In our weakness, show your compassion. 
in our weakness, God, restore this broken world. May our weakness reflect your power always. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.